Revelation 11, we're talking about God's or Christ, two special witnesses. Okay, we had talked quite a bit about uh, who they were and how this tied to the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 4. We're going to talk a little bit about their ministry today and then we're going to get into what actually happens to them at the end of their ministry. But just for review's sake, let's read a few verses starting with chapter 11 verse 3. And I will give power unto my two witnesses. The mighty angel is talking. We know that this is Jesus Christ appearing on behalf of Israel. I will give power unto my two witnesses and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days clothed in sackcloth. Three and a half years. This period of preaching overlaps the first three and a half years of the tribulation and the second three and a half years and coincides with the end of the sixth trumpet judgment. These are the two olive trees, Zechariah 4, and the two candlesticks, testimony, seven candlesticks represent the church. They're taken out of the world and replaced by two candlesticks, standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Here in verses 3 to 6, 3 through 6, we learn about these witnesses and the character of their ministry. We know how long it is. It's a preaching ministry, obviously. We know who they are based on the ID badge in verse 4. And then verse 5, we've already talked about verses 3 and 4. Verse 5 talks about the strength of their ministry. And there's some interesting practical truths implied here. And it's worth a look. These preachers, these street preachers who I believe are based in Jerusalem, who preach in the open air, who perform signs because the Jews are always seeking after some sort of sign. They are given supernatural ability to defend themselves. Supernatural ability from God to defend themselves. If anyone tries to harm them, they're killed. And this self-defense is sanctioned by God and Jesus Christ. It comes from Him, that power. In fact, their self-defense is a vital part of their ministry and key to its completion. So God sanctions the ability of these preachers to defend themselves against attack, to fight back with deadly force, and doing so is key to their ability to complete the ministry God has given them. This is interesting to me because there's a lot of strains of Christianity that say we as Christians never have a right to protect ourselves, to protect or defend our families, or to protect or defend those that cannot defend themselves. And often, these strains of thought will point to Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus tells His disciples and those listening in the Sermon on the Mount not to resist evil. If a man smites you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. And that's interpreted to mean that you never have a right to defend yourself. And then such thought would look at the fact that I teach martial arts or that some of you guys are martial arts students, that we can't be 
serving God, that we're disobedient by the fact that we're even training in these things because we'll never have a right. Some people even take it so far as to teach that if they were in their home with their family and someone broke in with a gun and was going to rape their wife or kill their family, that they biblically don't have a right to lift a finger. That they're just to sit there and be completely pacifistic. I would look at the ministry of these men to say that is not a scriptural absolute whatsoever. God gives these men the power to defend themselves with deadly force, fire coming out of their mouth, and if any man tries to hurt them, they'll be killed. Here God sanctions self-defense and gives power for self-defense to a couple of street preachers. I just think this is interesting. It doesn't mean we always have the right to fight back. It doesn't mean that if somebody hits us, we have a right to hit back. But the Scripture does give us certain responsibilities, including especially to those of us who have the ability to do what the Scripture commands. So I think this passage here, verse 5, forces us to look at Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, naturally, I would want to do that. I'm a martial artist, so these are things that are interesting to me. So let's turn to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and let's see what Jesus has to say about us as Christians. Are we to be such that if someone breaks in or comes into a school or a store where we're standing or we're uh, 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 shopping or whatever and lines up people and ask if they're a Christian, and if they affirm yes, they just get shot in the head. Are we just supposed to stand there and let this happen with a smile on our face? Or are we supposed to morally and ethically go to the defense of those that cannot defend themselves? Just like that young man in Oregon who rushed the shooter and was shot seven times attempting to try to stop him. Matthew 5, 38 and 39. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you (coughs) resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee or smack thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Is Jesus teaching pacifism here? Is a question. And in order to answer that question, we have to ask ourselves, what is Jesus' overall purpose in the Sermon on the Mount? We can't deny that He is preaching to Jewish people. Okay? His purpose in the Sermon on the Mount is not to reinterpret Old Testament Scripture. He is citing Old Testament Scripture here. The Old Testament taught Israel in their government an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Jesus is not saying that the Word of God is wrong and now we're replacing it with something else. Jesus said not one jot or tittle would pass from the law until all fulfilled. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is answering the rabbis' misinterpretations of the Old Testament law. He is attacking their Talmuds, which are the oral traditions, the commentaries on the Old Testament. He's attacking their Talmuds, not the Scriptures themselves. We have to understand that. The rabbis were notorious. After the regathering of Israel back in the land following the Babylonian captivity, they never again fell into idolatry, but they went too far the other way into legalism. And these oral traditions began to pop up, so no longer was the Word of God the authority. 
It was the opinions of the rabbis. And the rabbis, even to this day, are known for taking the Old Testament, taking the Bible, and stretching it to make it say things it doesn't say. Stretching it to make a command of God into a whole host of rules and regulations that they themselves cannot keep. And Jesus was attacking that. Notice He says, You have heard that it hath been said. He doesn't say you have heard that it has been written. So He's not referring to the Old Testament. He's referring to how the rabbis had taken the law and had said lots of things about it and put a burden on the people that wasn't there. How do I know this? Go down a few, or go back a few verses. Verses 31 and 32. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. Okay? The rabbis were teaching that if a man wanted to divorce his wife, it didn't matter why. If the food was cold, he could just write her a bill of divorcement and divorce her. If he didn't like the way she looked when she got out of bed in the morning, well, write her a bill of divorcement and divorce her. If she spoke one cross word and it made him angry, oh, that's fine, write her a bill of divorcement. You have a right to divorce your wife. That's what the rabbis were teaching. If you want to divorce her, divorce her. But is that what the Old Testament taught? No. Old Testament never taught that. In fact, the Old Testament actually taught exactly what Jesus goes to say. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the fault cause of fornication causes her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, that, that is divorced in such a way, okay, we have to read the context, committeth adultery. So in other words, Jesus said, you have no right to put your wife away saving for the cause of fornication. So Jesus gives an exception. What Jesus is saying here is exactly what is written in the Old Testament. So He's not attacking or changing the Old Testament. He's attacking the rabbinic interpretations. Turn to De Deuteronomy chapter 24. We find this statement in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it into her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. That word uncleanness there is the reason Moses gives for divorce. If a man finds uncleanness in his wife, that doesn't mean her hair is sticking up or she didn't get the dirt out from under her fingernails or she didn't get the food hot enough. That word uncleanness in the Hebrew comes from a root that means nudity, nakedness. It's talking about sexual sin. Moses gave divorce as an option for sexual infidelity. And if you go to Matthew 5, that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. He's not changing it. 
He's not questioning it. He's questioning the rabbinic interpretations. What did the rabbis do? They took that word uncleanness and made it mean things like hair is sticking up in the wrong places. Uh, didn't put the makeup on right. And that's typically what they do. In the Old Testament, it tells the Jews they're not to boil a kid in his mother's milk. They're not to cook a goat in his mother's milk. Now, there's certain aspects of that. God set those laws out there for Israel because Israel was to be set apart from the nations. And it doesn't matter why God didn't want them to do it. He told them that to set them apart. And these are things that pagans did. We're not Jewish. I'm wearing clothes today that are of mixed fiber. I eat shellfish. I'm not Jewish. I'm not part of the nation of Israel. Okay? A lot of people will come by and mock the street preacher when we're sharing the gospel and say, well, are you eating shellfish? Are you uh, wearing mixed cloth in your clothes? And ripping those verses out of context just like the rabbis do. But God told them not to boil a kid in his mother's milk. And obviously there were sanitation reasons there. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's stuff going on with DNA there. So it was for their safety, but it also separated them from the practices of the pagan nations. But what have the rabbis done? They've taken that statement, which is limited to boiling goat meat in the milk of the mother, and they've stretched it to say God is saying you can never mix meat with dairy. Never can be mixed. And what happens, what do you find then in a lot of Jewish kitchens today? They have two kitchens. One which is for meat, one which is for dairy. Two sets of plates, two sets of silverware, two stoves, sometimes two refrigerators. Because they think they're obeying the Old Testament law. Milk and dairy and meat cannot touch each other. The Scriptures never say that. But the rabbis have taken it and stretched it and made it say something it didn't say. They did the same thing with, with divorce. They did the same thing with uh, 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 Jesus' words here about eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So keep these things in mind. The Old Testament law allowed divorce for uncleanness or fornication, or as Jesus says, fornication. The rabbis had taken that passage and misinterpreted it to allow for bills of divorcement for any old reason. There are three biblical permissions, I believe, for dissolution of the marriage bond and remarriage. I know this is a totally different topic and we're not going to get into it today. I want you to hear my opinion. If you don't agree with it, that's fine. But I believe the Bible gives three biblical permissions for the dissolution of marriage and remarriage. The first one is death. Death dissolves the marriage bond. When your spouse has died, you are free to remarry. You're free to do it. You may not want to. You may want to be like Paul. You may not. It's up to you. Romans chapter 7. The second is sexual infidelity or fornication. When the spouse uh, goes out and, and cheats on their husband, or wife, or has an affair, or gets involved sexually with someone else, the Bible gives permission for that marriage bond to be dissolved. And when that marriage bond is dissolved, there's permission to remarry. Okay? Matthew chapter 5. Okay? Um, doesn't mean that's always the right thing or the best thing to do. You know, the, you may have permission from the Lord to do something, 
but it doesn't mean that there's not a better way that would bring more glory to Him. You had, Paul had permission from the Lord to marry, but he chose not to so that he could give himself wholly to the Lord. Okay? Paul talks about uh, uh, forgiveness. And we may have permission to dissolve our marriage bond if our spouse cheats on us. But a better way would be to follow the example of Hosea in the Old Testament. Just because God gives us permission doesn't mean it's the best way. Okay? Um, the third permission, I believe, that is given is in 1 Corinthians 7, and that is abandonment. If a believing spouse is abandoned by their unbelieving or claim to be a believer spouse, then they're no longer under bondage. Art thou uh, 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 tied to a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? That means one that abandons you, just like right there in the context. Seek not to be bound again, but if you marry, you've not sinned. It's right there in 1 Corinthians 7. I know those passages are twisted and people have a various number of positions there, but there are three biblical permissions for the dissolution of marriage. Death, fornication, abandonment. And remarriage would be allowed in all three. But it doesn't justify the rates of divorce in the church. Most of divorces in the church are for the stupid reasons that the rabbis taught were okay. They're not for these things. So divorce and its rate, which is more than 50% in American churches, is despicable and God hates it. God hates it. Okay, And there are certain standards for people in ministry that stand behind the pulpit and deliver the Word of God to you, that lead and pastor the church. There are standards there that God has set. One of those is to be the husband of one wife. Okay, I didn't write it. God did. Doesn't mean that somebody can't be forgiven or that someone that had biblical permission to dissolve the marriage bond can't be used of God, but God has standards in ministry. You know, women are not to pastor churches. I don't care what the world says. I don't care that when all these preachers, so-called preachers, gathered around Donald Trump last week or the week before and laid hands on him and prayed for him, I don't care that the one leading, one of the ones leading the whole circus was a woman pastor and a TV preacher at that, Paula White, a complete heretic. The Bible is clear. Either we follow the Bible or we don't. Okay? But I say all of that. That's a whole other topic. I'd be happy to answer any questions or talk more about it at another time. If you're married, stay married. If you're a husband and a wife, learn to forgive. Be like Hosea in the Old Testament. Okay? Stay married. It's, I'm, our kids need to see marriages that stay together. God knows they see so many that don't. And God does hate divorce. But I say all of this to set up uh, uh, what I'm talking about in verses 38 and 39. Jesus is attacking the rabbinic misinterpretations of the Scripture. Now... The Old Testament told Israel, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Let's see what it has to say. Deuteronomy 19. Who said that the book of Revelation isn't practical? Deuteronomy 19. I want to read verses 15 through 21. 
One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin in any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. So in other words, a man couldn't be condemned or found guilty based on the testimony of one witness. How often does that happen in our churches? One person gossips. One person says one little thing and then we all formulate an opinion based upon that gossip. That was wrong in God's opinion for Israel at the mouth of two or three witnesses. So the next time you hear somebody whisper something to you about something, before you believe it or formulate opinion, see if it can be established by two or three witnesses. You know, they said all kinds of things about Jesus at His trial... But the witnesses didn't agree. They couldn't even find two witnesses to agree, and still they condemned him. So the rabbis, who were all about the Old Testament law, supposedly broke the Old Testament law when they condemned Jesus. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition... And behold, if the witness be a false witness and hath testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do unto him as he had thought to have done to his brother. So shalt thou put the evil away from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So here we have this, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's in the context of due process. It's in the context of government, in the execution of government, two or three witnesses, and the government of Israel applying that dictum through due process. There's nothing here about individual action or revenge or getting back at someone. Eye for an eye was only via due process of law in the Old Testament. It was a responsibility of the government, not the individual. And it was not to be applied without two to three witnesses to corroborate the sin. Elsewhere in uh, the Old Testament, in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, this is mentioned again, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And it's in the context of violent crime that causes injury. So it's in the context of due process and in the context of violent crime that does injury. Its purpose is never vengeance. It was justice. But the rabbis had stretched and misinterpreted the law in their Talmuds to allow for personal revenge. An application of eye for an eye for matters of insult and to protect one's pride, not for matters of violence. They said eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth could apply if somebody insulted you. Well, you can insult them back. If somebody uh, uh, commits a crime against you, then you have a right to be a vigilante and go back and pay them back yourself. That was never right in the Old Testament. That was a matter to be handled by the magistrates and the leadership on the context of two or three witnesses. And so Jesus was telling the people, you don't have a right to use that to justify revenge 
or getting back at someone or saving face. He wasn't attacking the Old Testament. He was attacking the rabbinic misinterpretations. It's interesting when we go back to Matthew 5 that Jesus says, if any man will smite you, now, to resist not evil, okay, I believe that evil in the context here is not violent crime, but uh, mischief would be a good word there. Uh, Whosoever shall smite thee. That word smite means an open-handed slap. It's the Greek word rapidzo. It's open-handed slap. Okay? The purpose for slapping somebody, even today it's the same in our culture. What's What's the purpose for slapping somebody? Insult them. Make them look like an idiot. Show everyone they're a fool. Or it's a way of telling someone you're wrong or you're a fool. It's not meant to cause injury. Slapping somebody in the face does not injure them or cause permanent danger or damage to them. I mean, I guess if you accidentally missed and hit somebody in the nose, you could break the nose, but usually an open-handed slap is just going to sting and make you look like a real idiot in front of people, especially if your wife smacks you. In, in, uh, in a group of people. And sometimes she uh, really probably has a right to, to us husbands, but she refrains herself. Okay? The purpose of smiting was insult. Jesus was rebuking the rabbi's application of eye for an eye to the individual as a means to save face. Eye for an eye was for the government through due process on the testimony of two to three witnesses. It was never a means of personal Revenge. The Bible says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. He's saying, Don't resist mischief that doesn't put you in any real danger. Don't resist evil to save face or to protect your pride. Endure it to dissolve or diffuse it. He's not saying that you never have a right to defend yourself. He's not saying you never have a right to ward off dangerous violence or defend those that cannot defend themselves. That's not what's being said here. And other scriptures would prove that, including self-defense sanctioned for these street preachers in Revelation chapter 11. Jesus says to resist mischief. Resist mischievous evil. And don't eye for an eye is not, is not, does not give you permission to, to fight back to save face or to make yourself... Uh, look something that you're not or to use violence to put down something that's not a threat. Let me give you an example. A couple weeks ago I was in Anchorage, Alaska with two brothers. We were preaching at the bus stop in downtown Anchorage. There's a lot of savory, uh, unsavory characters that hang around down there. A lot of people drinking, street people, Lots of demonic activity. When you preach down there, it's like taking a rock and throwing it into a hornet's nest. We know that when we go there. But this particular day, Brother Ken was preaching, and this one young man, he's about this tall, started getting all crazy and lashing out and making threats. And a couple times he kind of got close to Ken. And I was just standing there watching in the corner. No one even knew I was with these guys. I was just watching. And I was a little concerned because I didn't want this guy to try to Hurt my brother, so I was watching him. Well, out of nowhere, he turned around and just looked at me and said, are you with him? And I said, actually, I am, and I don't want you getting in his face anymore. That's not going to happen. So you need to cease and desist. Well, at that moment, he pulls a knife out. And he starts laying about a threat. Now, keep in mind, this guy was about this tall. Knife wasn't very big, but according to the law, I had a right 
to use deadly force against deadly force. And when a person pulls a knife and lays about a threat on your life, that's deadly force. In fact, what he didn't know is quite comical. He didn't know that right here in easy reach was a 40 caliber Glock pistol that could have pulled out real quick. And legally, I would have had to write to at least draw the gun on him, and I could have made the case that it was legally okay for me to shoot him because he's threatening my life with a knife. But the question was not about what I had the legal right to do in terms of our American laws, but what did I have the ethical right to do? The reality was the guy wasn't a threat. You know, I could tell by his body language. I could tell by the way he was kind of shaken. I could tell by the way when he pulled the knife, he stepped back. These are things we as martial artists are trained to look for. He wasn't a threat. What he was doing was meant to insult me. And what Jesus said here is what made me realize I don't need to do anything. I don't have a right to just save face. Yeah, it may, may look, make me look weak, but this guy is not a threat. Now, had he shoved the knife at me or had he gone after my brother, things would change. But he wasn't a threat. It was meant to insult and in that case, I didn't have a right to go after him and beat him down because all it would have served was not to protect me. He wasn't a threat. It would have served to save face or uh, personal revenge. Okay? So I actually had to think about these things recently. Consider a couple of Scriptures in terms of what the Bible does give us the duty to do. Okay? We don't have a right to resist something mischievous that's not a real threat. We don't have a right to use vengeance as a means to see justice done. We don't have a right to apply eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth individually. But is Jesus saying we never have the right to defend ourselves or defend our families? I don't believe so. Consider a couple scriptures. Turn to Luke 22, 35-38. Jason, if you'll read that. And then Matthew, I'd like for you to read Proverbs 24, 10 through 12. Now remember, Scripture always has to interpret Scripture. Scripture doesn't con contradict itself. It has a consistent witness. So when we come to passages like this in Matthew 5, we have to interpret it based upon the testimony of other Scripture. We've already seen a testimony there in Revelation 11 where God sanctions the ability of these street preachers to defend themselves against violent crime designed to hurt them. So we know that. Luke 22, 35-38. And He said to them, When I sent you without purse and script and shoes, lied you anything? And they said nothing. Then said unto them, Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it. And likewise a script. And he hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you that this is that is written, ye must be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among his, the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, there are two swords. And he said unto them, It is enough. This is prior to Jesus going to the garden with his disciples. And he knew what was going to happen there. He had to be handed over into the hands of sinners. He had to be reckoned with the transgressors. And there would be a scene there. He would be arrested. 
Jesus told his disciples that you need to get ready. If you don't have a sword, go buy one. Okay? Turns out they had two swords, and Jesus said, it's enough. Why is that in there? Why did Jesus tell them to get a sword if people are never supposed to defend themselves? And why were two swords enough when there were his twelve disciples and him? I think we have to ask those questions. Why were two swords enough? What, did those, what were those swords intended to do? Two swords were enough to protect the disciples from violence, but they weren't enough to start a revolution or to prevent Jesus from being arrested. Jesus had them carry enough to protect themselves, but it wasn't enough to start a revolution or to prevent what had to happen. So by allowing them to carry swords... They were given the means to protect themselves. Now, Peter got a little rash with one of his swords, and he cut off the servant's ear. Why did Jesus heal that man's ear? Obviously, he had compassion on people. But there's another reason. Jesus healed that man's ear to protect his disciples. Because if that man's ear had stayed on the ground, then they would, the mob would have gone nuts and arrested the disciples and may have even killed Peter right there on the spot. So Jesus is healing was done to protect His disciples. Obviously, it was to have compassion as well. But Jesus told His followers to carry enough weapons that they could protect themselves from violence. But it wasn't enough to start a revolution or to make Him king or to prevent Him from being arrested. Proverbs 24, 10-12. This is important. If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death, and those that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? He that keepeth thy soul doth not he know it? And shall not be rendered to every man according to his works? So in other words, here in Proverbs, it's saying if you, if you get scared or you faint in a day of trouble, then you, your strength is small. Elsewhere it says the wicked, the wicked flee when no man pursues. All these so-called Christians out here that are so scared of uh, offending someone or so scared of the homosexual mafia or so scared of the freedom from the religion organization. So we'll, we'll take and I'll be a sheriff and I'll take and put some scripture stickers on my car and look at me, I'm taking a stand, I'm taking a stand. And in the moment... The sheriff's organization gets a letter from the Freedom From Religion organization. They immediately back off and rip the stickers off the car. Dude, you'd have been better off just keeping your big fat mouth shut and not even putting those stickers on your car in the first place if you're going to compromise. If you're going to take a stand and then pull it off the moment somebody objects, then you're better off not even taking a stand. If you're going to make a big deal about marriage licenses as you're a magistrate and the moment the Supreme Court utters an opinion you back away from it, then why did you even take a stand in the first place? If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. And the wicked are the ones that flee when no man pursues. Okay? The righteous are bold as a lion, however. But if, I, if you faint in the day of adversity, you're small. If you see someone suffering violence, given over to death, ready to be slain. And if you pass by and act like it's not going on or do nothing to stop it, the Bible says that He, God, who keeps you safe, 
is going to remember that you did nothing. And He's going to judge every man according to His works. It is very clear here in this passage that those believers, or we believers, we followers of God, have a responsibility to defend those who cannot defend themselves from violence. Particularly those of us who have the ability to do it. It's our duty and our responsibility. And if our fear and our selfishness keeps us from doing that, God who keeps us safe is going to remember our inaction. And He's going to judge us according to our works. This teaching here is very important to me as a martial artist. And it's very important to my students. If I'm going to teach you martial arts, then you are duty-bound as a believer and a martial artist to help those who cannot help themselves. If me or my students were standing in that classroom in Roseburg, Oregon, we were duty-bound to try to stop that man, whether we got shot seven times or not. To stand there and play dead would have been wrong. I'm not saying it was wrong for everyone in there, but when you have the ability, I just wish I could have traded places with one of those people that are dead. One of those people where he put a gun to their head and said, are you a Christian? You see, I'd have smiled and said yes. And I'm quite confident that before he could have put five pounds of pressure on that trigger, that gun would have been in my hand, his finger would have been hanging by a few strands of flesh, and he'd have been begging me for his life. I'm confident! I just wish more people had a little knowledge and could stand up for themselves. Or if one person in there would have been armed, a law-abiding citizen could have put an end to it real quick. Yes, somebody might have died, somebody might have got hurt, but not 13 people. Okay? We have a responsibility. That's why we go to the clinic sometimes. That's why people go and lift up a voice in defense of the unborn and try to stop the mothers from going in there and murdering their babies. Those babies can't defend themselves in their mother's womb. doesn't give us the right to go bomb abortion clinics and climb over the walls and all of this stuff. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, but we can lift a voice in defense. Okay? Um, we must let Scripture interpret Scripture. And these Scriptures, I believe, shed light on what Jesus means in Matthew chapter 5. So what we've done here today is just an exercise in how to understand difficult Scriptures. We interpret them based on clear passages. We looked at Luke, Proverbs 24, and Revelation 11, where self-defense against violence crime is sanctioned. If you're the husband and father of your home, you are duty-bound by God to protect your family, even if it means giving your life for them. The Bible says we ought to be willing to give our lives for our brethren in Christ. Okay? We give our lives by doing what we have to do to protect them. Okay? We have a principle that I teach. Uh, an old martial arts master once said, Master the martial arts, master its principles. Okay? If you want to master the scriptures, don't memorize every word. That's a great exercise, but just because you memorize scripture doesn't mean you know it. I mean, those, the, the, the elders down there at the Church of Wells cult, man, them guys have memorized big portions of scripture, but they don't know its principles. And they're heretics. They're false teachers. And people think, well, they can quote Scripture left and right. Well, the devil can do that. Master of the Scriptures, master of its principles. But we have a principle called the art of subduing. It says, wisdom favors subduing one's opponent 
over destroying him. But at times, to truly subdue is to reluctantly destroy, and that right quickly. We should never desire to have to hurt someone or have to use force to defend our families. And wisdom is to subdue our enemy, not to destroy him, but sometimes to subdue and to obey what's written here in Proverbs is to reluctantly, not joyously, but reluctantly destroy. And that right quickly. Interesting. Scripture must be interpreted with Scripture. Scripture does not contradict itself. We should interpret the obscure with the plain. With or by the plain. And never the plain by the obscure. That's where a lot of false doctrine comes out of. People take obscure passages like Hebrews 6 and 10 and they interpret the plain passages that talk about salvation being secure in Jesus Christ and teach, well, we must be able to lose our salvation. No. The Bible is very clear that salvation is secure. God is faithful. And those to whom God, those God gives to Jesus Christ cannot be lost. Hebrews 6 and 10, we need to look a little closer at these contexts. What is it talking about? Well, first of all, it's talking to Jews. Secondly, it's talking about those Jews who had heard the truth that Jesus was the final sacrifice, but they were wavering back and forth between following Messiah and continuing to go to the temple and offer up sacrifices. There is no more sacrifice for sins. It's done. Jesus was a sacrifice. So when you understand that, you understand that there's no way Paul is talking about losing salvation. Besides, chapter 6, verse 9 is very clear that he's speaking of something other than salvation. So when you take obscure passages and force your understanding on the plain, instead of letting the plain truth interpret the obscure, you get into trouble. And I think we have an example of this sometimes in Matthew chapter 5. But back to Revelation. Two street preachers are given the power and authority by God to defend themselves from violence, to subdue, even if subduing requires prompt and reluctant destruction. What's my policy? I'm an accomplished martial artist. I go out and preach the gospel on the streets. What's the policy I've established for myself? I've been hit a few times. No big deal. I get hit in martial arts class five times harder than on the street. I know what it feels like. It's no big deal. Okay, I've been hit. I've been threatened. I've been shoved a few times. I've had some pages torn in my Bible. I've been spit on, beer poured upon me. Nothing big deal. I mean, anybody that preaches the gospel on the street has to deal with this stuff. In a sense, I believe, and this is me personally, when I'm out preaching the gospel, I'm, I've decided I'm going to give up the right to defend myself. But, in obedience to what's written here in Proverbs 24, you better believe that with the abilities God has given me, I will defend or protect my brother from violence. I will. I'm not going to stand there and let my brother be attacked. And so what that little punk didn't understand with his knife is that I would not defend myself. But the moment he made a move at Brother Ken or Brother Sean, he was taking his life in his own hands. Okay, Because Proverbs 24 is clear. Um, and sometimes you can defeat an opponent with a single glance. You only have to throw a punch. That's another interesting thing to understand. I think that boy stepped back and started shaking a little bit when he pulled the knife because I zeroed in on him and I looked like I meant business and it diffused the situation. 
But it's kind of interesting, you know, we, we can talk about what we would do or what we wouldn't do. And you know, in those moments, we don't, we don't know what we're going to do. We just need to pray that God would always give us grace to do what's right and grace to make choices that would glorify God and not ourselves. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you what you should and shouldn't do. We need to pray for grace. We need to pray for grace. And we need to remember that sometimes the best form of self-defense is self-sacrifice. And Jesus demonstrated that clearly there in the Garden of the Eden. He, he, I mean, not the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane. He equipped His disciples to protect themselves from violence, but He chose not to defend Himself. He chose to sacrifice Himself. It's kind of interesting when you read the different accounts of the rest in the Garden of Gethsemane and the different Gospels. In John chapter 18, it tells us an interesting thing that gets overlooked. The moment the crowd shows up on the scene with Judas, a couple of men go at Jesus to apprehend Him. The first ones that try to lay hands on them, it says they, fell, they went backward and fell to the ground. So the first people that tried to put hands on Jesus supernaturally flew backward and hit the ground. Obviously, Jesus did that. He had the power to do that. And in doing that, He was demonstrating that He had the power to defend Himself. He demonstrated it very clearly. Then what happens? Matthew 26 Peter jumps the gun. He cuts off the servant's ear. Okay? What does Jesus say to Peter? Put up your sword, Peter. Don't you understand? I have power to call down 12 legions of angels to defend me. I've got the power to put an end to this. But it must happen that the Scriptures be fulfilled. So not only did Jesus de demonstrate His power by the people falling to the ground, He also declared His power to Peter in front of all those there. I've got power to call down angels. And then he further demonstrated his power by picking up that ear and attaching it back to the servant's body. Okay? When you go to Luke uh, chapter 22, um, it, it, it's interesting to read the different gospel accounts. The di different gospel writers who were eyewitnesses recorded different details. They all fit together. They don't uh, contradict themselves. Uh, it, that's where it tells us Jesus uh, actually picked up the ear and healed it. So he demonstrated and he declared his power. But when it came down to it, did he do what he demonstrated he had the power to do? Did he do what he said he had the power to do? No, he didn't. He chose not to. Why? Why did he sacrifice himself? He sacrificed himself that whosoever believeth upon him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Praise God our Savior chose not to defend Himself in those moments. Sometimes the best form of self-defense is self-sacrifice. And sometimes the best fight is to sit back and let God fight for you. In Exodus, the people were getting nervous on the shore of the Red Sea. Moses said, be still. The Lord will fight for you. So these are things I like to share actually when I'm doing a martial arts demonstration. So it's a great bridge to the gospel. And we got to do one in a Jewish rest home with a bunch of elderly Jewish folks in South Africa. And I was able to show them these things from the Old Testament. And then I told them exactly what happened with Yeshua HaMashiach in the garden. And that he was able to do these things because he was the son of God. And I kind of expected things to get a little squirrely when I got into that, but it didn't. And a few people took New Testament. So praise God for that. Um, 
Just some thoughts. And again, as we read and study Revelation, there are practical truths here that we need to think about. And we're entering a time, my friends, where Christians are becoming the targets of terrorism and violent crime in this country. And those of us that are men need to quit like men. Quit us like men. A good King James word, which means to be strong and be ready. We need to defend our families. We need to defend our brethren and be willing to give our lives for them and not compromise. The Bible never says we're to be spiritual doormats. We're never to be spiritual doormats. We don't have a right to start a revolution or to take vengeance that's God's, but we are commanded not to look the other way when those of us, our brothers, our sisters, our families, are given over to death and ready to be slain. So that's some interesting uh, teaching from verse 5. Verse 6, verse 5 talks about the strength of their ministry. Verse 6 is the vindication of their ministry. Obviously, the Jews are those that always look for a sign where there's lots of signs here that these preachers are from God, and yet the people don't listen. Plenty of signs. The Bible says that they're able to uh, shut up the heavens. Who did that in the Old Testament? Prophesied a drought, and then the heavens were shut for three years. Elijah. says they're able to um, take water and turn it to blood. Who was the instrument of that in the Old Testament? Moses. And to smite the earth with all sorts of plagues. Signs. The Jews are always seeking a sign. It tells us that in 1 Corinthians 1 and John 2. And God's going to give them signs that the time is short. They need to wake up and repent. I think verse 6 gives us some clues as to who these are. Because their powers mirror what we see in the Old Testament. And I'm going to end with this today. And next week I'll explain it. These two street preachers are none other than Moses and Elijah. And I'll talk more about that next week.